0: The Science Inside Podcast This is the Science Inside
1: Welcome to the Science Inside where we bring you the latest news, stories and events happening in the world of science and tech Good evening, I am Siabong Mota. Tonight we will be talking to you about the controversial and highly contested National Health Insurance Bill also known as the NHI that was approved by the Minister of Health Dr. Zuelim Kize earlier um, in June, July of this year, the the NHI bills lays the foundation uh, for providing uh health care service in South Africa by sharing available money for all who need access to quality and affordable health care the right to health care is re-enshrined rather in the South African constitution of 1996 and the National Department of Health has proposed to pursue this goal through implementation of a national health insurance the World Health Organization calls it the universal health coverage and it is a funding model which is utilized in many other countries in it is essentially um, a financing system designed to pool funds from various sex, um, sources. Uh, many financing systems in the middle-income countries are, f- are fraught um, with duplication and in- inefficiencies. Um, also, yeah, crowding, um, crumbling rather, of health system also often often impedes on consistent policies, focus, and incentives for efficiency on both risk pulling and purchasing grounds. While the majority of the population in South Africa cannot afford private health care and most access public health care and already congested and um, understaffed public sector, which is um, or contributes to slower. And even less responsive services. But some of the reasons behind the pushback is the setting of the, this 500 billion Rand 500 billion fund uh, aimed at state capture inquiries following funds mismanage, mismanagement at ESCOM, the SAPC, and other um, state owned enterprises. People are concerned about the corruption, and that is already rampant in the public healthcare set- sector. Policymakers and ordinary people on the street want to know who is going to fund it and how it will be managed, considering that many of the state-owned entities' financial uh, status is in um, status and highly corrupt. The, NH- the NHI program will be implemented through three phases over a period of five years each. Phase one commenced on uh, in 2012 and was completed in 2017. The first phase um, of the NHI program did not involve developing new funding arrangement for healthcare in South Africa, but rather piloted various health system strengthening um, interventions focuses on the primary healthcare level. Ten primary healthcare interventions in pilots dis- districts were set up to develop and re- refine the NHI-related policies through their feedback we'll be having more on the nhi a bit later on the show um, but later uh, on on science we'll talk about and later on we'll be here or we'll hear a story on how a similar financing system in the uk called the national insurance for health care excellency also known as the n-i-c-e we'll also hear about how it was set up also how it is working and so far and perhaps some key lessons we can learn from them. But um, remember to be in touch with us on social media, on Facebook, Voice of It in Bracket, or also on Twitter, um, at VOWFM, use the hashtag science.
0: This week's Science Headline.
1: The podcast is up on iTunes and um, at and vets.journalism.co.za for slash science. But for now, it is uh, the news. with
2: Good evening, I am Linda kuslet Dimakwe. In your news making headlines this week, STEM fields need more women in positions of power in order for them to thrive, and our first human ancestors' fossils reinforce the idea that breast milk is still best. Reports suggest that though women have made important, significant contributions to science throughout history, they have consistently been underrepresented at all levels. Data from New York STEM Cell Foundation's NYSCF initiative on women in science and engineering, IWISE, which was a four-year study of institutional report cards, indicates that although a growing number of women are in training in the sciences, efforts to promote and maintain women in more senior scientific roles are still largely inadequate. In a study reported in the journal SAL STEM last week, researchers reported that insufficient policies were put in place to support women in science throughout their careers. Radiation oncologist and director of the Center for Bioethics and Social Sciences and Medicine at the University of Michigan, Reshma Jaxi, adds that the data suggests that we are making headway, though many institutions still only have a few women in senior positions at most faculties. In addition to this, she said in certain areas, plenty of room remains for improvement, including the representation of women in certain roles. Over 1,200 report cards, which were part of a 2014 NYSCF project, put forward a number of strategies aimed at helping to achieve gender parity in science, technology, engineering and math were submitted. The paper represents 541 institutions from 38 countries in North America and Europe, and over 700 of the total report cards, some included in multiple years. Investigators found that although women made up more than half of the population among undergraduate, graduate and postgraduate students, the picture became different as seniority increased. Women made up... 42% of assistant professors, 34% of associate professors, and 23% of full professors. These rates varied greatly by institution. These findings suggest that the primary issue is not recruitment recruiting rather of women into STEM roles, but retaining them and promoting them into positions that are more influential. JAXI explained that funding are in a unique position to require institutional leaders to pay attention to equity, diversity and inclusion with their organizations by requiring report cards to promote action. Researchers will also look at other factors that may influence the recruitment and retention of women scientists, such as the presence of women in top leadership roles, the rates at which tenured women stay in their positions, and equity in salaries across gender, race and ethnicity. The next phase of IWISE will focus on highlighting best practices undertaken by institutions. This will provide comparative data and allow the researchers to monitor progress over time. And our final story, a team of scientists led by the University of Bristol, UK, and Lyon, France, have discovered that the first humans significantly breastfed their infants for longer periods than their contemporary relatives. By analysing the fossilised teeth of some of our most ancient ancestors, scientists have discovered that the first humans significantly breastfed their infants for longer periods than their contemporary relatives. The results provide insight into the practice of weaning that remains otherwise unseen in fossil records. The team sampled minute amounts amounts for nearly 40 fossilized teeth of our South African fossil relatives, early Homo, Paranthropus and Robotus and Australopithecus africanus. They measured the proportions of their stable calcium elements in tooth enamel, which are a function of the mother milk intake by infants. By reconstructing the age of tooth enamel development, the findings show that early homo offspring were best breastfed in significant proportions up to the age of 3 to 4 years. According to the scientists, this might have played a role in the apparition of traits that are specific to the human lineage, such as the brain development. In contrast, infants of the Paranthropus robustus that became extinct around 1 million years ago as well as infants of the Astro- Lopithectus africanus, stopped drinking sizable proportions of breast milk in the course of the first months of life. These differences in nursing behaviours likely come up with major changes in the social structures of groups as well as the time between the birth of one child and the birth of the next. University of Bristol School of Earth Sciences lead, lead authors in the study Dr. Theo Takel stated that a number of factors compromise or after the health of or after the health of the offspring, such as the duration of breastfeeding, age at non-milk food introduction, and at the end of sucking, differs among modern, modern, modern members of the hominid family. This would include humans and modern great apes, orangutan, gorillas, chimpanzees, and bonobos. The development of such behavioural differences likely played a big role in the evolution of the members of human lineage, being associated, with, for instance, with the size and structure of social groups, brain development or demography. The findings emphasised the need for further exploration of calcium stables... Isotopes, compositions in fossil record in order to understand the co-evolution of weaning practices with other traits such as brain size or social behaviours. However, little evidence collected from millions of years of fossils which do not give enough insight into behavioural changes. Recapping your stories this week, STEM fields needed more need more women in positions of power in order for them to thrive and our first human ancestors fossils reinforced the idea of that breast milk is still best This week's news was sourced from Science Daily Next up We have We have to find out more about the NHI And how it will be implemented From Sasha Stevenson from Section 27 After this
0: This week's Science Headline This is the Science Inside
1: Welcome back. You are still with the science inside. Earlier on, I spoke about the National Health Insurance Bill and all the things that people are concerned about in its implementation. Um, on the line right now, we are joined by Sasha Stevenson, who is the head, head rather, of the health at Section Twenty Seven. Um, here focuses areas, or her focuses areas rather, are uh, the National um, Health insurance bill, um, access to healthcare services in rural parts of the country, specifically speaking at Eastern Cape and Bumalanga, and access of emergency medical services, among others. Good evening and a very, well, well, very warm welcome to the Science Insight, Sasha.
3: Good evening. Thank you.
1: So now let's begin with this. How um, the NHI is going to be implemented, um, Phase 2. Of, um, how is the phase two going to be implemented when you're looking at the process um, of the health facilities between now and 2022? Um, because yet it has not been addressed and depending dysfunction dysfunction within the health system. Here we're talking about um, the high medical aid premium and the very poor services. How is this going to
3: work? So so it's quite difficult to say at this stage. Um, what? What does seem clear from the bill is that uh, the, the first step, really, in, in implementation of the bill will be the um, development of a national health insurance fund. Um, and that fund eventually will be the fund through which all money for for healthcare services flows. So that fund will be able to get money from Treasury, which is, you know, tax money, the way all departments get get uh, funding and it will then buy healthcare services uh, for anybody who's registered and, and, and that, that anyone in South Africa or anyone who's South African and a few other um, categories of people will be able will, will almost automatically be members of the NHI. And so that's, that's the long-term intention. What's not so clear is how the transition um, to NHI will work. So what the bill does say is that it'll start with the purchase of services for particular populations, so focusing in rural areas, focusing on services for elderly people um, and for children and for people with disabilities. So, so that's the idea, but what we don't know is what kind of services will be covered um, under NHI, how will that, that service package roll out. Um, we don't know how the accreditation of health facilities will work because the idea is that public and private health facilities should be able to be accredited and then provide services to anybody, but we, we just don't know how that will work yet. Yeah. So so really the gist is that there is some promise in this system in that it's, it's supposed to um, ensure that all health resources are available to everyone who needs it on, on the basis of need, not ability to pay. But some of the details remain quite hazy at this stage.
1: So now, Sasha, the South African government has obviously a repetition of implementing foreign ideologies and concepts without thorough consideration. Have you ever thought about how the NHI will work and fit in South African market? I mean, given our individual needs as as patients, our economy and various challenges faced um, by the health sector, such as uh, sabotages of um, shortages of drugs, rather, uh, obviously, and skill capacity, as well as infrastructure, to name a few
3: yeah so so i mean i think firstly we we can 't call this a a foreign concept necessarily it's a it 's a a concept that's been developed in line with a an international with an international idea of moving towards universal health coverage which is supposed to ensure that everybody has access to healthcare services and that um that, that access is based as I say on need rather than ability to pay. So this isn't a an implementation of a of the exact same system that, that exists elsewhere, but you do raise an important point about the ability of our system to change from the way it operates now to a completely different system. That that is quite a difficult process. You know, we've now got a public health system that serves more than eighty percent of the population, a private health system that serves a very small minority of the population, um, and and public and private facilities, health facilities that are in very different uh, states and provide very different qualities of care. And so, moving from from that system to a system that um, that all, all funding is centralised, and that that services get actively purchased rather than health facilities being given a budget by the government is quite complicated, and and that's really why we need the detail of how this transition is going to work.
1: So now, obviously, you're still um, having this issue of priving uh, pricing rather, um, though um, we speak of public health care and access, not all public hospitals and clinics, healthcare services, um, and provi- uh, uh, provision is free. No. Will the NHI look into scrapping upfront admission fees at public health facilities, uh, one or two, and how then we are going to finance these in- institutions, which which would, will always have um, the run in its manner? Considering the NHI bringing a cost-effective solution for healthcare.
3: Yeah, So the idea is that there should be no upfront fees for health services. Um, for anyone who's registered as a as a healthcare user under the fund, so those um, admission fee- fees or file opening fees that you currently have to pay at public hospitals uh, won't be payable under the national health insurance uh, process, and that that's certainly positive. That expands access to services. And another another positive um, aspect is, as I say providing access for everybody to all health facilities, whether public or private. Now, of course, there's a lot of provisos that those facilities have to be accredited and they have to agree to take the, 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 the price that government is prepared to pay them. So there'll have to be negotiation about that. But what it means is that where there's currently excess capacity in a hospital, where, for example, 40% 40% of the time um, a, a, a hospital bed or an ICU bed in a private hospital isn't occupied because there just isn't enough market, there aren't enough people um, using those services, government will then be able to, you know, buy that time essentially and, and ensure that people can use that space. So it has the potential of of ins- of, of decreasing costs to consumers um, or to, to patients, to users of the healthcare system, and using health resources more effectively. It's just, it's just that at the moment we don't know what services will be provided, we don't know what what pr- prices will be um, set, and so all of that creates real uncertainty for users yes. of the healthcare system, for provincial managers and, and, and office bearers, and indeed for, for people um, who operate hospitals and medical aids and that kind of thing.
1: Now, according to stats, say our foreign um, migrant population rises by 200,000 annually, and these are people who are also often um, will need, obviously, access to public health care. How is the NHI looking um, into planning well in advance for, from a financial and capacity point of view?
3: Well, I think that's one of the the most serious problems with the NHI bill as it's currently formulated in that what it says is that all South African citizens and permanent residents and refugees are entitled to be uh, um, users of NHI. So they they will be registered as, as users of NHI and they'll receive the same services. So that's positive for refugees. What it doesn't provide for is everybody else. So what it says is that um, undocumented people and even asylum seekers who are waiting, um, adjudication of their refugee uh, status. And some people can wait for up to 10 years or even longer, um, to, for, for, for that to be decided by Home Affairs. Um, they are only entitled to ambulance services. And services for what's called notifiable conditions of public health concern. So that's things like Ebola, cholera, TB, etc. So what this excludes is um, services like uh, emergency services in hospital, services for the treatment and um, screening and treatment for HIV, services for pregnant women um, and, and this is a real problem from a public health perspective because of course if, if you're not treating foreign nationals for HIV there's a risk to South Africans. But it's also a problem because it's a regression in, in rights. Currently asylum seekers and undocumented migrants from Sadh states are entitled to the same treatment as South Africans. And if we're going back on that, we really are changing the way that at least in law um, we we are we are treating um, and valuing people who come from other countries. So so the, the NHI isn't so much planning better uh, for people from other countries. It's really seeking to exclude treatment for, for people from other countries to a large extent, and that's a real problem.
1: Will it mean that at some point, maybe people from other countries will be asked to pay for healthcare if they come to South Africa?
3: Yes, yes. If you're not registered under NHI, then you are not entitled to any healthcare services other than those services that I mentioned in respect of asylum seekers and undocumented people. So they would have to pay in full for all healthcare services.
1: All right. Uh, Moving on now, obviously, we are well aware that South Africa has a disease uh, burden of uh, tuberculosis, diabetes, heart disease, and HIV um, in that order. Considering these diseases um, burdening our health system, will other not prioritize or cover or be covered, rather, by some medical aid or the public sector, be covered in the bill? And what about the, the, the prevalent ones? Uh,
3: again, we don't know. Um, there's there's no detail in the bill as to what kind of services or or disease groups will be covered. Um, the, the theory behind universal health coverage is that a country should start really at the most basic services and at primary health care level. So, um, ordinarily, when countries try and roll out these kinds of programs, they start with a very small set of, of healthcare care services that may include uh, things like screenings, um, the services of community health workers, that kind of thing, and then expand depending on budget and depending on how they're able to roll out the program. Um, but it's it's not clear at the moment what services will be included within NHI. So it's very difficult to speculate as to whether there'll be an increase um, in available services or a decrease.
1: You know, one of the pending issues here would be, obviously, South Africa is, one, is known as, I mean, we've been talking about corruption left, uh, right and center. And, I mean, how do we make sure that the bill is well managed when you talk about not to be in a corruption state and also that good quality health care is provided and maintained um, and, and and obviously that the funds are, are, are well managed. So if you're talking about corruption, how do we make sure that we're not in a position where this bill would be in a state of being, um, I mean, looted or corru- uh, corruption activities taking place?
3: Yeah, so that's of course a big risk and there are certain things that you can do to try and um minimize that risk so the first thing that that we see a problem in relation um to to uh possible mismanagement of the of the nhi fund is the process for appointment of the board members of the fund at the moment it's all very centralized to the minister he makes he or she makes a lot of decisions um on appointments on removals on dissolving the board and um, etc he also decides on appointment of the CEO of the fund that we think is too centralized and there's a need to um to, to make those appointment processes more transparent more public and therefore to make the board more accountable so there are ways of doing that just in the in the structure of um of the the fund and its governance, and that's that really is very important because a lot of the problems that we've seen, in, for example, state-owned entities and and other structures in, within South Africa, come from uh, deficits in that governance um, in the governance sphere. So that's important. But of course, having a good board and having a good CEO isn't a isn't a surefire solution um, to preventing any mismanagement of funds, and so anti-corruption measures would need to be built into the structures um, of the NHI fund. There's a very vague mention of that in the bill, but, but much more details really needed because, as you say, this this fund will need to well, South Africa will need to trust the funds. Yes. Um, and and I think South Africans are, are quite jaded in relation to these kind of entities. We really need to be assured that there are processes and measures in place to protect healthcare funding because uh, the the way that NHI envisages it is that all funding will be sitting in, in one pool. And so there really is a need to, to put both governance and other measures in place to ensure the money is is retained appropriately. And then in relation to... To um, the quality of healthcare services. The idea is that the Office of Health Standards Compliance that exists currently will have to assess all health facilities and make sure that they comply with certain basic norms and standards. and um, They've already been doing that, and, and most facilities don't currently comply with those norms and standards, so w- they would need to improve, and we don't really know how um, that's uh, meant to happen. And then there needs to be an accreditation process, which is also about norms and standards, but but, um, but mainly about ensuring that the facilities have the right kind of human resources and that they have the right systems in place, that they're able to collect data and that they will accept the prices that government's giving them. So that's, that's the, the way that um, it's intended that, that quality um, and, and kind of standardization of healthcare services and healthcare facilities will be ensured under NHIA. You
1: know, many people say that the bill will only benefit rich South Africans. Would you say that is correct?
3: I don't think so. No, I think I think the the intention of the bill is certainly not to benefit rich South Africans. It's to treat all South Africans the same. Whether that that comes off is uh, remains to be seen. But I think that there is real potential benefit for poor South Africans for for people who are currently using a health care system that is in large parts dysfunctional and that is underfunded but where funds are also mismanaged and services um, and the quality of services is is inappropriately monitored. NHI is supposed to ensure that people can use health facilities across the public and private sector. It's supposed to ensure that that quality really is monitored. Um, And so I think if we can get some some um, issues with the bill and the, the, the structure of the fund and that kind of thing, and population coverage, right? National health insurance has the potential to benefit um, poor South Africans, I think, more than rich South Africans, and indeed to benefit the country as a whole because health is investing in the health of a population is an investment in that population. It's, it's important for the economy. It has a real multiplier effect. Um, when people are healthy, when system, health systems are functioning, when people are employed within the health sector, that can be that's good for people and it can be good for the economy as a whole. So we need to see health as an investment and we need to see equity in health. Um, as a benefit to poor people, but also to the country as a whole. All
1: right, Sasha, before I let you go, um, can you please tell me about the developments that we can look forward to with regards to cutting um, unregulated high medical aid costs and obviously the access to medication um, at pharmacies?
3: Okay, um, so so the, the Competition Commission um, has for the last few years been um, looking at the private health sector, and trying to determine whether there whether there are um, anti competitive components um, to the private health sector and one of the things they've been looking about looking at is um the cost of medical aid not that they haven't been looking at the cost of medicine but they've been looking at the the price of medical aid and and the price of private health care services and the Report: The final report of the Competition Commission's health market inquiry is going to be released at the end of this month, at the end of September. And that commission, the preliminary report suggests that they made some really important recommendations about, the, about ways to bring down the cost of and, and improve competition in private health. So I think that's a really important um, development and it'll be vital that those recommendations are in fact implemented because even though we are intending to move towards NHI and for health services to be available across the board, uh, you know, public and private health services to be available across the board, there's still a need to deal with some of the high prices in the private sector um, at least in the interim, and to make sure that, that um, users of private healthcare services aren't continuously squeezed out of that sector and into a public sector that, that doesn't have the capacity um, to, to to care for them as well as the rest of the population. Sasha,
1: thank you very much for joining us tonight right here on The Science Insight.
3: Sure, thank you.
1: That was uh, Sasha Stevenson, an attorney and head of uh, the health um, at Health Section 27, speaking to us about the rolling out of the NHI uh, and what it could possibly look into look like in for South Africans. So you are still tuned into the Science Insight right here on VARFM 88.1. Remember, you can find us on Facebook, Voice of It in brackets, and uh, Twitter um, at VowFM Use the hashtag, the Science Insight. Up next, we are going to... The Unscience, where we'll find out about eating fast food-only diet can send you to an early death. Later um, on, it is the show. Um, Stay tuned. We return after the break.
0: You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events.
1: Okay, welcome back on The Science Inside. It's time for Unscience, where we're looking at uh, the stranger side of research and we take a peek at what scientists spend a lot of time on money. Today's Unscience was produced by Bridget LeBerry. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience.
2: So, an extreme case of fussy or picky eating has caused a a young patient's blindness according to a new case report so now researchers from university of bristol who examined the case recommend clinicians to consider nutritional optic neurotherapy in any patients with unexplained vision symptoms and poor diet, regardless of their BMI, to avoid permanent vision loss.
1: Okay, that sounds yeah difficult (laughs) for me, I mean, (laughs) how is it possible?
2: Well, um, the nutritional optic neurotherapy is basically um, a dysfunction of the optic nerve, which is important for vision. So in earlier stages, the condition is reversible, but left untreated. It can lead to permanent, you know, structural damage to the optic nerve and sometimes blindness.
1: Hmm. Wow. So, would you would you I mean include other food groups being included in the diet, um, or th- this was just a study only based on strict or a uh, junk food diet?
2: Well, researchers concluded that the patient's junk food diet and limited um, intake of nutritional vitamins and minerals did you know result in the onset of nutritional optic neurotherapy. So, I do reckon that it was a mixture of all foods, but the majority of the diet was mostly junk you know the researcher suggested that the condition could become more prevalent in the future also given the widespread consumption of junk food at the expense of more nutritious options well and also the uh, the rising popularity of veganism if the vegan diet is not supplemented appropriately to prevent vitamin b12 deficiency
1: chocolate chip cookie important to me Ah,
2: All right, all right. (laughs) I see. So, even the
1: consumption of anything alone, even though it might be uh, uh, healthy, may not necessarily be good for you. That's what you're saying.
2: Basically, that's precisely it. In developed um, places like the UK, you know, the most common causes of nutritional optic neurotherapy are bowel problems or drugs that do interfere with the absorption of various important nutrients that are from the stomach.
1: So, basically, you mean countries with good quality of food? have less dietary effects, but in other countries it may be different because environment, because of environmental issues, poverty, wars, and other factors linked um, to malnutrition. Hmm. I mean, let me just ask this. So you're saying that lead, this lead might lead to a higher rate of uh, nutritional uh, opaque, um, neuropathy. Uh,
2: correct 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 so the clinician from the bristol medical school and the bristol eye hospital examined the case of a teenage patient who initially visited his general practitioner complaining of you know general tiredness so the link between his nutritional status and vision was not picked up until much later and by then his vision was already impaired and it had already become permanent
1: okay that's very deep so I mean, the, the 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 truth is that old age, adage is that too much of anything, even if it's good. Or is it true?
2: Aside from being a fussy eater, you okay, know, the patient had a normal BMI and height, and no visible signs of malnutrition, and also took no medications. So the initial tests showed macrocytic anemia and low vitamin B12 levels, which were treated with vitamin B12 injections and dietary advice.
1: This sounds more interesting, you know. I w- I want you to you just get into it more because now I'm I'm a bit lost on it. <laughs>
2: okay, hold on to that thought. But when the patient visited the GP, you know, a, a year later, hearing loss and vision symptoms had developed without a cause. By the age of seventeen, the patient's vision had progressively worsened to the point of blindness.
1: Wow, wow. I mean, I'm really confused now. I mean, so now we have to look into what we do, what we eating, basically.
2: That's basically it. To further probe the indicated, um, further probing indicated that um, the patient had basically um, vitamin B12 deficiency, low copper and selenium levels, a high zinc level and markedly reduced vitamin D level and bone mineral density.
1: That sounds more like the bulk of nutrients uh, one needs to stay healthy. So when did his bad eating habits begin?
2: So apparently, according to these scientists or researchers, um, since the beginning of um, his secondary school, so he had consumed an unlimited diet of chips, crisps, white bread and some processed pork. By the time his condition was diagnosed, it was unfortunately a bit too late. All right,
1: all right. I mean, okay, this looks for me interesting. Since we are talking about making healthcare accessible to all who need it. Mm. But it goes to show that even with excellent healthcare, Mm. you can never... Replace good um, eating habits and, and and the sound of health health diet.
2: Right on point, Dr. Siawonganduli, the <laughs> study's um, lead author and consultant, senior lecturer in ophthalmology and Bristol Medical School, and clinical lead for neuro ophthalmology at Bristol Eye Hospital. Dr. Denise Atten highlighted that this peculiar case highlights the impact of diet on visual and physical health and the fact that calorie intake and BMI are not reliable indicators of, you know, nutritional status like we always assume it is.
1: So for many of us who are, I mean, who swear by high uh, fat salt and sugar uh, content diet how should we ensure um, we don't fall under the same then?
2: okay i'm glad that you asked that so now basically a diet history is recommended as part of any routine clinical examination so this would include things like asking about smoking and alcohol intake and i'm pretty sure a healthy lifestyle would be part of the researchers orders as well it's unusual it's unlikely and science (laughs) all
1: right um up next uh we go into a story where we can take away some lessons from the uk concerning the implementation of the nhi here in sa more on that on the after the
2: Unusual,
1: unlikely, unscience.
0: This is the science inside. Inside.
1: Welcome back to the Science Inside. And if you just joined us, we are midway through the show, and it is the story where we're going to hear from Professor Andrew Briggs, who holds the William R. Lindsay Chair in Health Economics at the University of Glasgow. Briggs, uh, Briggs rather focuses on statistical methods for cost-effective analysis, including statist- statistical methods for um, estimation or for parameters for cost-effectiveness models. As as well as statistical analysis of cost-effective alongside clinical trials. Here, he is um, a world expert in this field. Towards the end of August, he delivered a lecture where he spoke about the importance of a health technology assessment process for the implementation of the NHI in South Africa. He also spoke about the National Institute of Healthcare Excellence um, financing system called NICE. In short, it's um, achievements amongst um, other things.
4: Let me give you a very quick background of where I'm coming from, which is as an academic health economist, I spent 25 years plus thinking about how we do economic evaluations, getting involved in economic evaluations. And I've been very fortunate to live through a time when the audience for our economic evaluations has changed in the UK. And that changed when... In 1999, our National Institute for Health Care and Clinical Excellence, as it's now called NICE, was introduced. And suddenly, we had a decision maker in the UK who was interested in the work that we were doing. And the work that we were doing stopped being an academic exercise and became of real policy relevance. So I wanted to reflect on mainly on NICE, because NICE is the reimbursement organisation, as we call it, uh, the HDA body in the UK that that has uh, responsibility for making decisions as part of our National Health Service. Perhaps some of the ways in which it uh, has been less successful and might have some lessons for a similar sort of entity that might come about here in South Africa as part of I would also reflect, though, of course, that HTA is a truly international thing. There are many other countries that have already introduced HTA processes uh, to help support priority setting in their jurisdictions. We think of uh, Australia as being one of the first, actually, uh, that a process back in 1992, although only for new pharmaceutical products. Canada also has a process, Sweden, Norway, many of the uh, European countries. But it goes beyond that to uh, some of the more middle-income countries. Thailand has a health technology assessment group that's been very influential in impacting policy within Thailand. Brazil has something of a process and so on. So there are many other countries to look through for stories, but I'll focus mainly on NICE just because it's the the one organisation I have. Uh, most familiarity with So sort of reflecting on on Nice's process, I think you know one of the real success stories of Nice, and one of the reasons why it has survived from its inception in 1999 through to the current day, is that it is seen to be uh, an autonomous organisation. It's separate from government. It's part of our <coughs> national health service. It has a status as a special health authority making decisions on behalf of the NHS about what interventions we should cover. The other reason that I think NICE is a good beacon for HDA processes is because it covers more than just drugs and pharmaceuticals. It looks at diagnostic devices. It looks at processes of care. It covers clinical guidelines. It covers public health. And that means its broader remit, I think, speaks to one of the most important principles that HTA agencies are there to address and that we as health economists try and get over to our audience, which is the principle of opportunity cost. We have a fixed budget for healthcare in the UK, and I suspect you have something similar here with a limited amount of resources available for healthcare. And therefore, every time we do something new, we have to think about the opportunity cost of that decision. The decisions that we are making are fair and equitable. And one of the reasons that NICE was set up back in 1999 was a perception that we had a lot of postcode prescribing in the UK because individual health boards were making their own decisions and therefore the population wasn't getting equal access to health care. And so the idea of NICE was to bring about the end to postcode prescribing by bringing in play uh, national guidelines for what should be funded. To that end, I think they've been successful. I
0: think uh, very uh, useful. I think this idea of opportunity costs is something that we don't like to think about. Some people call it trade-offs. We shouldn't be using that word. But actually, that is what it is, and we're all making trade-offs in our daily lives uh,
4: with our own budgets. I think the issue of opportunity cost has played out for us in the UK, as I suspect it might uh, for you here, which is that you have to think not only about the things that you are actively funding, but also where the money for that is coming from. If you make a decision to use something within the health service which is new and shiny and expensive, you have to think about where money for that is coming from. And very often, and I think what we've experienced in the UK, is that while the uptake of new interventions can be fair and equitable and covered by national guidelines, the disinvestment that occurs to fund those things operates at a regional level and can be unfair and inequitable. And that's something that perhaps we haven't managed to uh, address as much as, as we should have, and that's something that I think people are starting to think much more carefully about. So in terms of thinking about an HDA process, it's not I would say it's not just about trying to fund the new things. It's also trying to think about what you're already doing, which represents good value for money, what you're already doing, which uh, perhaps doesn't represent such good value for money, and I know from my experience in the States that there's a lot of discussion about overuse of health services there. As you know, they have one of the most expensive health systems in the world, coupled with some of the uh, certainly not some of the best health outcomes. Um, and so thinking through, using an HTA process to think through the issues around disinvestment of things that are perhaps not offering good value for money, so that you free up resources to do things that are good value for money. Because that's the ultimate opportunity cost, as the economist would call it. When you spend your money in one way, you don't get to spend it in another. And the real cost of doing that is the health benefits foregone. Uh, Perhaps paradoxically, for some of you in the room, as health economists, we think about opportunity costs not in monetary terms, but in health terms. And I think that's the right way to think about opportunity costs. And I think that can be extended not just to thinking about efficiency issues, about generating as much health gain as possible, but also equity issues about making sure that that health gain is evenly
0: spread across the population. Andy, could you tell us a little bit in your experience about... So HTA is not just the analysis of whether it's cost effective or a certain threshold, etc., but the process by which this takes place and why that's important.
4: This is hugely important and it's perhaps almost the most important thing that you can be thinking about as you enter an era where you may be considering introducing an HTA process. And again, I would argue that that's perhaps an area where NICE has been successful, and I'll put that down to a few things. I think let's start with the concept of explicitness. It's true that when you undertake an HTA process, part of the process is that you're making decisions explicitly. Those decisions may not be decisions that are universally popular, and I can tell you from UK experience, it's all you're going to upset somebody in, whenever you make a decision, because there are going to be winners, and there are going to be losers, and perceived unfairnesses. But if you think about the process, making those decisions explicitly makes the body um, much more accountable, compared to making decisions behind closed doors and where nobody really understands why decisions have been made. But I think NICE itself goes beyond that and actually seeks to be much more transparent than perhaps other agencies who may have a committee making an explicit process. NICE actually goes to the effort of publishing a lot of the deliberations that lead up to their decisions. One can go on the NICE website and they can track a certain paper trail of information and evidence base that led up to a decision, including notes of deliberations that the uh, committee made, and that's all published in summary form in what NICE calls its final appraisal determination. The other part that I think has made NICE successful in terms of its process has been the inclusive nature of uh, both the committee and people who are encouraged to engage with the committee. So the standing committee will be multidisciplinary, it will include clinical experts, it will include statistical experts, it will include health economists, it will also include patient representatives from the patient community and representatives from the lay community. So the committee itself is broad, but also those people who are called on to testify towards to the committee is also broad, individual expert clinicians. Will be called to testify to the to the committee. As will patient advocacy groups.
0: Can I just say what I, my interpretation of all of this is? So right now, decisions depend, except with the exception, if we say, probably of the Affordable Medicines Unit, at the Department of Health, where they do have a process. I think that the issue is that many decisions get made implicitly. So should we add such and such a a, a guideline, for example, to antenatal visits? There's no explicit process by which that takes place.
1: That was Prof Andrew Briggs from the University of Glasgow talking about the importance of the health technology assessment as South Africa um, continues to to the process for implementation for the NHI bill. The discussion here was chaired by Director of um, Priceless Essay. So Priceless Essay is priority cost effective lessons for systems um, strengthening. So this one was based at Vets School for Public Health professor, um, by Professor Karen Hoffman. Please uh, stay listening. We return after this break. That was it for tonight on the Science Insight. I hope you have learned a thing or two about the National Health Insurance and that the discussion is shared here have shed some light into what the bill is about. It's all about and importantly how it is going to affect you and what the necessary points to ponder on. Well that was all in tonight's show. We would like to thank you um, as our um, guest featured on the show tonight including Professor Andrew Briggs, Karen Hoffman and of course Sasha Stevenson. Our team behind the scene um, is production by Bridget Libera and obviously Linda Gulledima you can find this week's show on journalism.co.za forward slash science. Social media, it is Facebook, Facebook for sovets in brackets. Twitter is on at Vow FM, um, hashtag Science Inside. The Science Inside is produced by the Vets Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. That's it from me, Ustia Mota. Good night. This is the Science
0: Inside. The science Inside.
1: The Science Inside Podcast. Podcast.